Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, George Dash and the 1942 Nazi U-boat invasion of America. Please note in future episodes, I will have information about the release of a novel entitled, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's get started with our story about George Dash. At a few minutes past midnight on June 13, 1942, 21-year-old Coast Guard Seaman Second Class John C. Cullen left the Amagansett New York Lifeboat Station to begin his four-hour, six-mile patrol of the beach along the Atlantic Ocean near the tip of the South Fork of Long Island. Amagansett is one town east of the Hamptons, but in the early 40s, the entire thinly developed area contained only a few small summer bungalows and houses, a far cry from its current status as the summer playland of the super-rich. Cullen was assigned the dull task of a sand pounder, one of thousands of Coast Guard personnel who kept a 24-hour watch on the eastern seaboard from Maine to Florida. Although the U.S. was in its seventh month of World War II, America's enemy, Germany, was 3,000 miles away on the European continent. Typically, the most threatening situation Cullen might encounter would be a local ignoring strict blackout regulations or a couple intent on privacy wandering onto the beach. Although he and his fellow Coast Guardsmen were assigned to patrol simultaneously in both directions, Cullen had the station's only clock device used to punch into the navigational beacon three miles to the east, leaving a record of his timely patrol completion. Cullen would turn around and walk the three miles back to his outpost and hand the device off to the seaman assigned to the western patrol. Saturday morning, June 13th, was unusually foggy, rendering Cullen's flashlight virtually useless. Unarmed, his only other piece of equipment was a flare gun. The seaman was only seven months from former employment as a delivery man for Macy's, and without any sophisticated communications equipment, it was unclear, even to Cullen, how he would ever be able to communicate anything urgently important, especially if he was several miles away from the lifeboat station. Presumably, that would never happen. Cullen had already adapted to the foggy conditions by walking relatively close to the waterline to ensure that he kept a straight line, the sand also firmer and less tiring. To relieve the boredom, Cullen usually sang popular tunes to himself, but tonight 
After walking only about a half mile, he spotted what looked to be three men ahead of him, one on the beach and two knee-deep in the water. He yelled to them and turned on his flashlight. The man on the beach began walking slowly in his direction, and as he advanced, Cullen shouted again, Who are you? As the man approached, Cullen turned off his pointless flashlight. Coast Guard? Yes, who are you? Cullen repeated, increasingly irritated with an individual who had to know he was somewhere he and his group didn't belong. Fishermen, we were trying to get to Montauk Point from East Hampton, but our boat ran aground. We're waiting for sunrise. What do you mean East Hampton and Montauk Point? Cullen was confused. East Hampton was five miles to the west, and these must have been dreadfully inexperienced fishermen to run aground only a few minutes away from their starting point. Anyone actually fishing at this hour of the night certainly could not be that hapless. Maybe they were. Do you even know where you are? The man's answer was not reassuring. I am not sure where we landed. You should know. Cullen had no idea what was going on, but sensed that something was not right. The man was clearly preoccupied and trying to stand between the seamen and the stranger's companions. Best to get to the bottom of this with some backup at the station. Cullen motioned over his shoulder. You're in Amagansett. That's my station over there. Why don't you spend the night? The man hesitated briefly before agreeing to go with Cullen, but after a few steps, he stopped. I can't go with you. I have no identification and no fishing license. Cullen more suspicious with each passing second, insisted. No, I won't go. By now the seaman had gotten a good look at the man's outfit, a long mechanic's coat, red sweater, dungarees, white socks, tennis shoes, and a brown fedora, certainly atypical for a fisherman. Cullen reached out to grab the man's arm and told him he had no choice. Suddenly, the stranger's demeanor changed. How old are you, son? Cullen backed off. 21. The man then asked if he had a mother and father, and Cullen answered yes. Look, I wouldn't want to kill you. You don't know what this is all about. The man then reached into his pocket and pulled out some money. Forget about this. Here's some money. Go have a good time. Cullen refused. I don't want your money. From out of the fog, another man with only a bathing suit on suddenly appeared, dragging a heavy canvas bag. The man with the fedora blurted out, Clams! We've been clamming! The man with the canvas bag began speaking in a foreign language, only to have the man with the hat angrily clap his hand over the newcomer's face, telling him to shut up and go back to the others. The man disappeared into the fog. The first alleged fisherman took Cullen by the arm and led him away for a few feet. Then he stopped and pulled even more money out of a pouch. He told Cullen that it was $300.00 and it was his to keep if he forgot what he had seen. Next, he took off his fedora and got close to the now thoroughly frightened seaman. Take a good look into my eyes. Look into my face. The man's features were distinctively odd, with elongated arms, a hooked nose, protruding ears, and a silver streak that ran through the center of an otherwise dark head of hair. He asked if Cullen knew him or recognized him. The seaman said no, he didn't. You might hear from me again. My name is George John Davis. What is your name, boy? Frank Collins, sir. Cullen lied as he slowly began to inch away, the money seemingly clutched in his hand as a sign of agreement. With the stranger making no move to stop him, 
Cullen moved further and further from his proximity, the fog eventually allowing him to turn and run as fast as he could back to the Coast Guard outpost. John Cullen's instinct that something was wrong and that the men on the beach were involved in something suspicious was correct beyond his wildest imagination. George John Davis was actually George John Dash, a German national in the initial stages of a covert sabotage operation that had been planned and authorized at the highest levels of the Nazi military and government. Dash and three other colleagues were in the process of burying and concealing sealed boxes of detonation devices and explosives that were eventually to be used to blow up critical factories and key transportation links within the eastern United States. They also carried $85,000, an amount that is valued at over $1 million today. Without the fog, Cullen would have easily spotted the U-boat that transported Dash and his sabotage team across the Atlantic. Dash's participation in this scheme was no coincidence. The process that resulted in this bizarre and fateful interaction with the 21-year-old American Coast Guardsman had actually begun over two decades earlier. Dash had previously spent 19 years in the U.S., was married to an American, and came within a paperwork formality of actually becoming a U.S. citizen. While his excellent knowledge of American culture and the English language made him an obvious selection for his current assignment, Dash's personal motivation was complex, contrary to the goals of the mission itself, and resulted in grave consequences for both his comrades and several others who had the misfortune to eventually cross his path. George John Dash was born on February 7th in Speyer, Germany, the fifth of 13 children. His mother, a social worker and quite influential at critical moments of his life, implored him at the age of 13 to enter a seminary in preparation for the Catholic priesthood. Dash was expelled a year later and then served briefly in the German army at the conclusion of the First World War, lying about his age to facilitate enlistment. Post-war occupation by American troops resulted in Dash's fascination with emigrating to the United States, and his employment on the docks of Hamburg allowed him to eventually stow away on a merchant ship bound for Philadelphia. There, he avoided detection and blended into the neighborhood, getting a menial job within days of his arrival in October of 1922. Determining that he might have more success within the large German expat community in New York, Dash quickly headed north. Dash was enterprising enough to realize that he would never truly assimilate into the U.S. unless he learned English. Initially a resident of the German enclave of Yorkville, he moved to another neighborhood in Manhattan and learned to communicate well enough to find steady employment as a waiter. Dash soon saved enough money to buy a car, travel cross-country with some friends, and eventually enlisted in the military. When he discovered that such service did not qualify him for citizenship, he still received an honorable discharge. By 1930, Dash was married to an American, a hairstylist, and he continued to work as a waiter. As his uneventful life continued through the 30s, Dash enjoyed a reasonably contented existence, but his inability to advance beyond a relatively menial position became frustrating. In addition, his deeply ingrained socialist beliefs and determination to attempt to unionize any workplace he worked in created problems. 
Management typically decided he was a communist. Officials within his waiters' union, local, thought he was a Nazi. Everybody found his verbose and opinionated personality to be annoying. By 1939, he began the process of becoming a U.S. citizen, believing that this might allow him a way out of the restaurant business. After 15 years of residency and passing a written test, Dash was only required to personally take an oath of allegiance to formally become an American citizen. But when Dash's mother visited her son in New York in the summer of 1939, she was shocked and disappointed that her son was still employed as a mere waiter. She forcefully urged him to return to Germany, where some of her relatives were gainfully employed and where she believed he would be able to obtain a more prestigious position. She explained that Hitler had brought great change and prosperity to Germany, and his prospects would be much better there. Returning to Germany just as war was breaking out, Dash's mother also reminded him that a true German would not abandon his country. Dash's wife also began to experience serious health issues requiring her hospitalization. A legal dispute with his union forced him from all but the most menial work, and suddenly Dash, after years in the U.S., found himself no better off than when he arrived as a stowaway. With money tight and little chance of any rapid economic advancement, Germany began to look like a reasonable alternative, but global events made that prospect extremely difficult. The outbreak of war in Europe made merely jumping on a ship to Germany impossible. Despite U.S. neutrality, American ports were closed to German ships. Nazi Germany also greatly restricted access for anyone, even expatriates, attempting to enter the country. Dash was subjected to a lengthy Washington, D.C. German embassy interview before he received a passport and agreement to pay for his transportation back to the fatherland. His only option was to take a western route by ship from San Francisco to Japan, on to China, and then a train across the entirety of the Soviet Union. To take advantage of the official repatriation program, Dash was also given such a narrow window to travel to the West Coast that his sick wife could not accompany him. Feeling that he had no other option, Dash left New York and made his way to San Francisco by bus. He sailed from California on March 27th. It was a grueling 10 weeks before Dash arrived in Berlin. Along the way, he encountered other more ardent Nazi expats who threatened and even punched him when he failed to salute enthusiastically. Upon arrival, Dash was confined to a hotel with other newly arrived German nationals, where he was rigorously interviewed by officials intent on determining the exact motivation for his return. Among these interviewers was a man named Walter Kapp, who grilled Dash in English to assess how well he spoke the language. After Dash lied to him about employment in an import-export company and demonstrated language proficiency, Kapp gave him his card, indicating that he was an editor of a magazine, and encouraged him to interview for a position. Dash was polite, but was anxious to visit his family and explore other less nebulous options via family connections. When Dash got to his hometown of Spare, he received bad and even worse news. His wife, Marie, had attempted to reach Germany by taking a ship to neutral Spain, but nothing had been heard from her since she left New York City. Much more ominously, Dash's mother told him that returning to Germany during wartime was a huge mistake. Things had gotten extremely repressive, and no one would hire a recent emigrant 
from America. Unable to get anywhere professionally and receiving no help from the German bureaucracy, Dash became so frustrated that he contacted any acquaintance to find employment and to figure out what happened to his wife. Leaving no stone unturned, he returned to Berlin to meet with Walter Kapp, the alleged magazine editor. Surprisingly, Kapp was able to determine that Marie Dash's ship was stopped by the British Navy, and all German nationals, or those related to German nationals, were detained and placed in internment in Bermuda, where they would remain for the length of the war. While Dash absorbed that shock, Kapp invited him to lunch. It must have been obvious to Dash that, based on Kapp's ability to penetrate Nazi bureaucracy in a matter of minutes, this was no mere magazine editor. In fact, Walter Kapp had a lengthy history with the Nazi party, both in Germany and the United States. An early convert to National Socialism, Kapp sported the Golden Party membership badge that denoted status as one of the first 100,000 official party members. In fact, his status as a Nazi necessitated his flight from Germany after Hitler's aborted Bierhall Putsch in 1923. Kapp landed on his feet and found work as a journalist in German-American-oriented newspapers. His political slant soon gained him access to the German-American Bund, the pro-Nazi American organization that supported Hitler and the Nazi party in the U.S. Unfortunately for Kapp, he was eventually pushed out of the Bund by American Fritz Kuhn, who won a power struggle to take over the organization. In 1937, Kapp decided to return to Germany, where he found work within the government generating propaganda related to the United States. Once the war broke out, Kapp joined the Abwehr, the military intelligence agency of Nazi Germany. His magazine was merely a front for a listening post that monitored American radio broadcasts for the German Ministry of Propaganda. This explained Kapp's interest in Dash's ability to speak English. He offered him a job as an analyst who would listen to broadcasts and produced a condensed version of correspondence like Edward R. Murrow or politically relevant commentary that contained opinions relative to Nazi Germany. The propaganda ministry was especially keen on anti-German or pro-British statements to amplify hostility to the United States. Ambivalent about Hitler and the Nazi government, Dash was not enthusiastic about the position, but Kapp highlighted some of the perks which included a high salary, access to a luxury-laden commissary that stocked goods unavailable to ordinary Germans, and most importantly, exemption from military service. Kapp emphasized that Dash could expect to be drafted in no time, one method that the government implemented to ensure that those with suspect loyalties were removed from the general population. Shuddering at the mere thought of military service, Dash took the job. He spent six relatively uneventful months churning out reports until mid-December when he was summoned to the Berlin headquarters of the Abwehr itself. By now, subsequent to Pearl Harbor, Germany was at war with the United States. Any individual who had lived in and had knowledge of the U.S. was of great interest to German intelligence. There he met personally with Walter Kapp, clad in a Wehrmacht uniform and assigned to the Abwehr II unit, supervising the development of disinformation and sabotage in countries hostile to Germany. 
Cap sounded him out on the idea of returning to the United States, but did not get into the specifics of how or even why. Although wary of refusing Cap for any reason, Dash also secretly was quite unhappy with life in Germany and regretted leaving the United States. He agreed to consider anything Cap had in mind and added that he was ready to fight for Germany in any capacity. This false bravado was exactly what Cap was looking for as he began to recruit individuals for a project that had been instigated by Adolf Hitler himself. While Hitler was openly contemptuous of U.S. society, considering it a decadent, culturally backward entity, quote, pervaded by Jews and blacks, unquote, he did respect and even fear American industrial capability. Urged on by Hermann Goering, who understood the potential for the rapid American manufacture of aircraft and other military armaments, Hitler began to fixate on the idea of unleashing a massive Nazi sabotage effort that would strike on American soil. Such sabotage succeeded frequently in World War I, most famously in New York Harbor when, on July 30, 1916, German agents successfully detonated an explosion at a supply depot of ammunition and TNT that was so intense that it blew out the stained glass windows of St. Patrick's Cathedral and permanently damaged the Statue of Liberty. While this and numerous other plots successfully impacted the production of armaments and weapons meant to aid the Allies while America was officially neutral, President Wilson cited these acts of sabotage as one of several justifications to declare war on Germany. Hitler no longer had to worry about that consequence, and he began to berate Abwehr chief Wilhelm Canaris to implement the Fuhrer's concept of a massive covert attack on America, both destroying American industrial capability and fomenting a homegrown fifth column of resistance within the German-American community. Canaris and the head of the Abwehr II section, Erwin von Lahausen, began to cast about for an appropriate individual to supervise this covert scheme. Walter Kapp, having spent many years in the U.S. and possessing an understanding of the German expat community, was a logical choice. Kapp, eager to settle scores against a country that ultimately rejected him, enthusiastically accepted the assignment. Perhaps Canaris and von Lahausen, secretly anti-Nazi and two of several eventual leaders of the ill-fated German military resistance to Hitler, were subtly trying to derail the operation from the top down. Walter Kapp did speak excellent English and was familiar with the American home front, but he also was a heavy drinker, an inveterate womanizer, accessed his position via his early party membership, and was unlikely to be able to organize the meticulous analysis and structure of what would have to be a delicate and skillful operation. Cap's inability to recognize and recruit the appropriate individuals for this scheme was immediately demonstrated by his enlistment of George Dash and the designation of Dash as one of the senior leaders of the saboteur team. Cap lazily accepted Dash's biographical details without ever verifying the 38-year-old's true background as a waiter and menial worker. In addition, Dash's self-absorbed, morose personality, delusions of grandeur, and strange personal mannerisms did not distinguish him as a leader of men capable of making momentous decisions. While Cap spent the rest of the winter attempting to locate additional members for his team, von Lahausen and Canaris sparred with the upper echelons of the German Navy. 
One of the reasons that German intelligence needed to offload additional manpower directly onto the North American continent was the result of a disastrous setback involving a previous attempt to penetrate the U.S. with a German spy. In 1939, the Abwehr identified a visiting naturalized American citizen named William Siebold and, based on an undisclosed criminal conviction on his American citizenship application, blackmailed him into becoming an intelligence agent. Sent back to the U.S. by the Abwehr, armed with a radio transmitter and the names of already existing German agents in the U.S., Siebold went straight to the FBI, who advised him to serve as a double agent. He successfully deceived his German handlers until the summer of 1941, when the FBI summarily arrested 33 individuals connected to what was known as the Duquesne spy ring, after its leader, Fritz Duquesne. All of the 33 involved either pled guilty or were convicted in what remains the biggest espionage, arrest, and prosecution in U.S. history. This incident tarnished the Abwehr's reputation, and when the intelligence agency approached Admirals Rader and Dernitz to coordinate the use of Dernitz's U-boats to secretly land spies on American shores, Dernitz vehemently refused. Extensive negotiations took place which resulted in Dernitz's eventual cooperation, but only under the guidelines that the agents involved had to be of the highest quality. Dernitz would have been appalled at what Cap eventually assembled, but by then the process was moving forward and out of his control. In early April of 1942, Walter Cap sent 12 men, including George Dash, to a former estate located in a rural area on the Quensee, a lake near Brandenburg, about 40 miles outside of Berlin. A working farm requisitioned from a Jewish manufacturer, much of the acreage was already transformed into a training center for CAP's operation, including a laboratory, rifle range, explosives pit, dummy buildings, and railroad tracks and classroom. Intensive training began immediately, two experts delivering detailed presentations and lectures concerning explosives, detonation, and weaponry. Within days, three individuals were deemed unsuitable and dropped from the program. The remaining nine men were split into two units. Dash led one of these groups, which consisted of five individuals. Heinrich Heink and Richard Quirin were former longtime residents of the U.S. who had recently returned to Germany and worked together at a Volkswagen plant as skilled laborers, quiet and practically dull-witted. Josef Schmidt, a boisterous, abrasive hothead who blatantly and frequently told Dash that he, Schmidt, should be in charge, and Ernest Berger, by far the most complex and intelligent of all of Cap's recruits, and an individual with a startling background. Berger had lived long enough in the U.S. to obtain U.S. citizenship, had even served in the National Guard, but also had spent several years in Gestapo prisons, the result of suspicion over his involvement in the S.A., over time, Dash would learn more about Berger and his recruitment, a relationship that had profound effects on the mission, now dubbed Operation Pastorius, after Franz Pastorius, the 1683 founder of Germantown, Pennsylvania, the first German-American settlement in America. The second group was led by Edward Curling, an ardent Nazi who returned to Germany from over a decade in America in 1939 to fight for Deutschland. Hermann Neubauer had lived in Chicago, was friends with Curling there, and even had an American wife. 
but his participation was probably the most questionable of the group. After returning to Germany and enlisting in the Wehrmacht, he was seriously wounded on the Russian front and still had remnants of shrapnel in his eye and skull. Werner Thiel was a former Ford Motor employee with a checkered employment history in the U.S., who agreed to take advantage of Germany's repatriation program in early 1941. The fourth recruit, Herbert Haupt, was more American than German, having emigrated at the age of five to Chicago with his parents. Haupt, also an American citizen, had fled to Mexico with a buddy after Haupt impregnated his girlfriend and through an unpredictable set of circumstances found himself in first Japan and then Germany. At 21 years of age, his level of maturity should have been a red flag for such a mission, but Cap did not seem to have been very discerning. Other than knowledge of English and American culture, all of these men even struck Berger subsequently as utterly mediocre. The nine men spent three weeks training at the Quincy compound. All were able to complete the program to Cap's satisfaction and were then dismissed for a 10-day furlough spent in various parts of Germany with families or girlfriends. Dash told his family in Speyer that he was being sent to Chile to work there for the foreign ministry. Herbie Haupt managed to arrange a final get-together with Wolfgang Worgen, his friend from Chicago who had run away with Haupt to Mexico and accompanied him through Japan, Russia, and ultimately Germany. Worgen had been briefly considered by Cap for the mission, but was even younger than Herbie and ultimately deemed unsuitable. He was living with his grandparents in Konigsberg and Haupt told him all about what he was involved with. Worgen told him that he would never escape the FBI and would wind up in prison. Haupt initially claimed that he would be able to land on the beach and then just disappear. But as their evening together wore on, he got more depressed and even began weeping openly. Following the furlough, the nine were summoned to Berlin, where they were billeted in a hotel. There, they were given further training in identifying and destroying potential strategic targets like river locks, railroad yards, locomotives, and factories. Some of the men were becoming increasingly anxious, understanding the reality of their extremely dangerous mission. Hermann Neubauer's wife, Alma, who had accompanied him back to Germany, spoke little German and had never wanted to return with him, was greatly upset, the Gestapo already harassing her based on her status as an American. Neubauer himself was also greatly depressed. He merely told her that he was going to have to return to the Russian front and emphasized that he might never see her again. All nine men were outfitted with American-style civilian clothes, fake identity papers, and presented with eight wooden crates containing waterproof stainless steel receptacles packed tightly with plastic explosives, detonators, and timers. Dash and Curlin, as team leaders, were given additional training in invisible ink composition and composed handkerchiefs, covertly containing contact names for reliable friends and relatives in the U.S., Dash and Curlin were also each given approximately $85,000. Following another Berlin farewell party bacchanal, sponsored by Cap and attended by von Lahausen, the nine men then headed for Paris, eventually destined for the submarine pens on the northwest coast of France when transportation on a U-boat became available. Luckily, Cap only had to wait three days for the go-ahead to the port city of Lorient. His unit, provided with large amounts of French currency, 
spent the entire time in the French capital engaging in a nonstop revelry of alcohol and prostitutes. After arrival in Lorient, an installation in another hotel reserved for U-boat personnel, the men were then presented with money belts containing large amounts of $50 bills and an additional $450 in smaller denominations. Herbie Haupt was the first to recognize a major issue. More than a few of the bills were gold certificates, removed after the U.S. went off the gold standard in 1934. Other bills, probably obtained in Japan, were stamped with Asian lettering. The men were all stunned with Cap's carelessness as possession of such currency would draw immediate scrutiny. Although Cap nonchalantly told them to merely dispose of the potentially incriminating banknotes, it was a disconcerting moment. Cap also must have had his doubts about the saboteurs as well. Shortly after arrival, Dash surreptitiously disappeared from the group and returned to the train station. He informed the officer in charge that he had lost a notebook containing some identity papers after leaving it on the train. Suspicious, the individual eventually reported Dash to the local Gestapo, leaving the saboteur no choice but to involve Cap, who rectified the situation. The notebook, containing family photos, sensitive notes, and information from lectures conducted at the Quensei, and even Dash's fake social security card, was never recovered. Dash sensed that from that moment on, Cap may have silently concurred with the opinions of some of the other recruits who bluntly expressed the opinion that Dash should not be a team leader. But it was too late for any major reorganization now. Within 24 hours of the group's arrival, the curling team was integrated into the crew of U-584, destination the beach at Pontevedra, Florida. Because the Dash team had a shorter trip, they would leave two days later on May 28th. In the interim, Schmidt complained that he had contracted a venereal disease in Paris, and after an examination, he was removed from the mission, another ominous portent for Cap, as the sometimes cantankerous Schmidt was one of the more forceful and physically imposing members of the unit. Later, he would reveal that he had faked his condition to get out of the mission, which he felt was headed for disaster. By the time the Dash group was loaded onto U-202, Walter Cap was seemingly glad to be rid of everybody. Although the U-boat captain, Hans Heinz Linder, asked the group to join him in his quarters for a toast to the newcomers, Capt stayed merely long enough to wish everyone well, and then quickly bolted. By then he had argued heatedly with Dash concerning some fundamentals of the mission once the saboteurs arrived in the U.S. Cap, probably eager to demonstrate success in an operation that was under evaluation at the highest levels of the government, wanted the group to immediately begin to destroy American strategic objectives and openly communicate with potentially sympathetic former Bund members. Dash wanted to take at least several weeks, if not months, to blend in and avoid any activity that generated suspicion. He also strongly objected to even contacting Bund members, believing that there was no guarantee that they were either loyal or willing to stick their necks out in such a potentially dangerous situation. Former Bund members might also be under surveillance, and any meeting could elicit investigative scrutiny. Dash had already openly feuded and exchanged physical threats with another team member, Hank, and was suspicious of Berger as a plant based on his background and involvement with the Gestapo, no matter how negative. There is little detail available on the Florida group's submarine journey. 
but based on Dash's 1959 autobiography, there is a great deal of information available about life for the saboteurs aboard the craft and Dash's mindset as he returned to the United States. It cannot be determined precisely when George Dash decided to sabotage Operation Pastorius, but he claims it was from his very first days of recruitment by CAP. Additionally, his overall strategy was to approach the American government, unmask the saboteurs, and provide input with the appropriate governmental agencies to provide more effective propaganda that could be targeted at the German people. Dash was quite delusional in thinking that if, even after being deposited on American shores as an enemy combatant, he merely went to American law enforcement and reported the existence of the plot, he would be hailed as a patriot and incorporated into the war effort. Belief in this fallacy indicated why he was fundamentally unsuited not only for his leadership position, but for the mission itself. Others on board were also not enthusiastic. Even as far back as the initial training session at the Quensei, Berger had blurted out statements about his imprisonment that indicated a deep hostility to the regime that had abusively persecuted him. Offered a role in Pastorius to clear his name with the government, Berger also had misgivings about the mission, privately telling the teenage cook on board the U-boat that he was not optimistic about success. Quirin and Hank were already hostile towards Dash and suspicious of Berger as well. They stuck together on the U-boat and rarely spoke to anyone but each other. As if this backdrop of ineptitude, fear, and suspicion was not enough, the four men had to adapt to the oppressive and claustrophobic U-boat environment. The craft, a Type 7C, was only 142 feet long within its interior. A six-foot-tall individual would be barely able to stand, and a width of about 10 feet at the widest made it difficult for two submariners to pass each other in the passageway of the ship, especially with every amount of space crammed with equipment, provisions, and weaponry. On top of the normal crew of 40-plus men, the four additional passengers, with their sea bags and crates, only added to the crush. Unless it was under attack or performing a brief evasive maneuver, the U-boat cruised on the surface of the ocean, rocking back and forth as it knifed through the waves, a motion that induced seasickness in the saboteurs as they lay in their bunks, attempting to adjust to an alien environment. The journey across the Atlantic was scheduled to take approximately two weeks, with an inability to bathe, only two toilets, one exclusively for officers, a cooking area as well as industrial grime everywhere, it was only a matter of days before the submarine became even more uncomfortable and oppressive. At least the four saboteurs were granted permission to access the exterior of the bridge where in the open they could join the sub's lookouts for a cigarette and some fresh air. Allowed to access the sub's radio system, Dash also learned that on top of a massive Manhattan military parade scheduled for May 13th, the day they were scheduled to arrive in New York City, the U.S. government had also instituted gasoline rationing throughout the eastern portion of the country. With the tentative plan involving the saboteurs eventually transporting their explosives across long distances by car or truck, obtaining gas legitimately as foreign nationals posed another significant obstacle in their path, to say the least. Linder passed along a message that the captain of U-584 indicated that it would be June 17th before he would be able to reach the coast of Florida. Linder personally was on schedule to reach the vicinity of Long Island by June 12th, 
on that Friday afternoon, U-202 surfaced approximately 28 miles south of its destination, the beach near the town of East Hampton. Unfortunately, the entire coastal vicinity was socked in with heavy fog, preventing Linder from determining his exact location via sextant. Nevertheless, the U-boat commander decided that he would slowly approach the coast, utilizing only his relatively quiet electric motors, diesel engines potentially loud enough to attract official attention. When the bow scraped the sand, he would then send an inflatable raft ashore with two sailors, the saboteurs, and their equipment. At about 8 p.m., Linder felt and heard indications that the submarine had struck the bottom. Shortly before midnight, he surfaced completely and maneuvered his craft parallel to the beach. It was so foggy and dark that he could not even see land, but he could hear waves crashing, indicating that the shore was close at hand. The landing party was summoned to the exterior deck. The raft inflated, crates, sea bags, a suitcase crammed with money, and men quickly situated within the small craft. A lengthy rope was then attached so that the two sailors could pull on it, signaling that they were finished and could be reeled back towards the submarine. For the landing, the saboteurs were dressed in naval caps and fatigues in the event of capture. They could at least attempt to claim that they were military personnel and not spies, hopefully preventing their execution. Once ashore, they were to access civilian clothes from their sea bags, bury the explosives, and quickly find the nearest train station for the Long Island Railroad, which would transport them to New York City in about three hours. The two sailors would also take the military uniforms back to the sub, preventing recovery and alerting anyone on shore of a German presence. Pushing off from the submarine at a 90-degree angle, the landing party assumed that they were heading straight for the beach, but they quickly got disoriented. In the thick fog, they seemed to travel in circles, with the shore first seemingly on the right and then the left of the dinghy. Several times, large waves smashed against the craft, soaking the men in baggage, only the waterproofed crates avoiding a drenching. Two men lost their paddles, and a cap also went into the water before Dash took one of the longer oars and attempted to reach bottom. When he felt sand, he leapt into the water up to his midsection, the two sailors following. The rubber dinghy quickly dragged onto the sand. With the anticipated new moon and fog, visibility was still poor, but the group made out some dunes at an incline near the water's edge. While the sailors drained the dinghy and prepared to return, the saboteurs hastily concealed the four wooden boxes and changed into civilian clothes, Dash keeping an eye on each group's progress. Although Captain Linder had done a remarkable job via dead reckoning navigation and skill in getting only a few miles from his intended destination, Dash was already concerned when he observed a flashing Coast Guard beacon near their landing point. Already alert to the possibility of a Coast Guard patrol, perhaps this was why he was the first person in the landing party to observe and interact with John Cullen. In any case, Dash saw the Coast Guardsman before Cullen saw him. Although Dash and the rest of the landing party were given specific instructions to kill any civilians they encountered or capture and return to the U-boat, any Coast Guard or military personnel who could provide invaluable intelligence, this did not occur. Although Berger, the other saboteur who Cullen heard speak, quickly informed Hank and Quirin, by the time they were aware of the situation, Cullen had fled. While there is some indication that the two sailors and eventually an angry Captain Linder did become aware of Dash's interaction with Cullen, it seems unlikely that the two sailors, armed with submachine guns, would have ignored their orders. 
Perhaps they were so anxious to get off the beach that they did not want to get involved in the complicated process of subduing Cullen and dragging him back to the sub. Most likely they hastily rowed back to the boat, unaware of Dash's interaction, and in their haste and anxiety, both Dash and the two sailors forgot to return the Navy uniforms. Dash himself was certainly aware that if he participated in capturing an American Coast Guardsman, eventually carried off to an uncertain fate aboard a German U-boat, he could forget any positive interaction with the American government. John Cullen ran back to his outpost as quickly as possible, returning in approximately five minutes. Waking up his fellow guardsmen, he began yelling about Germans on the beach. His commanding officer, Bosun's mate, second-class Carl Jennett, was an experienced seaman who initially suspected that Cullen was the victim of an overeager imagination. But when Cullen pulled out the money Dash gave him, $260 actually, instead of $300, Jennett was convinced and prepared a response, notifying the off-duty commander of the outpost, Chief Bosun's mate Warren Barnes, who showed up within minutes. Jennett issued rifles to the seven other men in the Coast Guard station, also inexperienced that he had to give them a quick tutorial on their safe usage. Calls were also placed to the off-duty senior officer at the Amagansett station who contacted Coast Guard intelligence in New York City. Upon hearing about the incident, the lieutenant receiving the call, Fred Nerschel, decided to investigate in person, grabbing another lieutenant, jumping into an automobile, and telling the driver to get to Amagansett on the double. Before leaving, Nerschel also notified naval intelligence responsible for the entire East Coast. The report was logged but caused little reaction. Frivolous U-boat sightings of frequent occurrence. Although they made it back to the spot on the beach where Cullen had encountered the landing party in about 30 minutes, there was no one there. However, despite the fog, they could clearly make out the silhouette of some kind of vessel, complete with a flashing red light only a few yards past the surf. The smell of diesel was clearly in the air, another indication that this was no insignificant presence. At 1 a.m. aboard the U-202, Captain Linder was currently dealing with a situation far more serious than the failure to capture an intelligence asset or the loss of uniforms. Having placed his vessel on its heavier starboard side, parallel to the shore, both the waves and the tide eventually pushed the U-boat up onto a sandbar, leaving it aground and unable to maneuver away from the beach. With the tide now running out, the depth of the water could only decrease, trapping him even further. The situation deteriorated so badly that at 3 a.m., Linder made an announcement that the crew should prepare to scuttle the ship and to head ashore to captivity. The ship's Enigma coding machine was also prepared for destruction, perhaps the most valuable item on the U-boat. With dawn breaking, his presence would be quickly detected and reported to local military installations, making his capture imminent. But Linder still had a few minutes of darkness left, a reversing tide, and one last chance to get away. He stationed the crew in the aft of the ship, removed the torpedoes from their forward tubes, and began to alternate his powerful diesel engines from reverse to forward and back again in an attempt to extricate the sub with a rocking motion. It eventually worked, the craft making its way off of the sandy bottom and away from the area. Unfortunately for Linder, the noise was so loud that it was clearly audible at the Coast Guard station, anyone in the vicinity able to observe the U-boat clearly. However, without any rapid response from either the Coast Guard or the Navy, Linder was able to escape. On shore, only a few yards away, 
Barnes and his band of Coast Guardsmen quickly determined that the landing party was no longer in the vicinity. While searching for any enemy presence, Cullen himself found a pack of German cigarettes, but because of the darkness, it took several hours before the group noticed a shovel deliberately left by Dash sticking straight up out of a sand dune. Within minutes, the four boxes of explosives, naval uniforms festooned with Nazi insignia buried in a sea bag, various other more innocuous items of clothing, and even a half-empty brandy bottle with German lettering were quickly uncovered. Only hours after stepping on American soil, elements of the U.S. military were fully aware that a group of German invaders had landed in North America. For Dash and company, this was not an auspicious debut. Luckily for the Germans, the two Coast Guard intelligence officers loaded up the incriminating material into Nerschel's car and drove it back to Coast Guard headquarters on Manhattan Island. They instructed any local Coast Guardsmen to remain in place and not discuss the situation with anyone. Most importantly, they did not alert any law enforcement, including the FBI, to begin an attempt to locate the mysterious landing party. Such behavior was not unusual, as factional rivalries were rampant within the military and even more pointed when dealing with the FBI and its egotistical director, J. Edgar Hoover. It was not until the two officers, back in Manhattan, revealed their stash of explosives and uniforms to John Bayless, the Coast Guard commander responsible for the entire port of New York, that Bayless reluctantly realized that the FBI would have to be notified. Even that process did not play out until the early afternoon, as Bayless merely requested that the head of the FBI's New York office meet with him to discuss an important matter that he refused to detail over the phone. By then, the four saboteurs were nowhere near Amagansett, although their exit from eastern Long Island contained some precarious moments. Dash was vaguely familiar with the area and recognized the general location of Amagansett from his days living in New York, but he still had no clear direction for the village or railroad depot. The men were savvy enough to get away from the beach as quickly as possible, and still under the cover of darkness, they were able to quickly access the main road in the area, the Montauk Highway. Wandering in a northerly direction and careful to avoid any homes or brightly lit areas, they were especially alarmed by the sound of the U-boat diesel engines they heard as they stealthily tried to extricate themselves from the beach vicinity. When a large campground forced them to walk in a circuitous manner, they stumbled over some railroad tracks. Dash correctly headed west, and within a mile, they reached the Amagansett train station. At five o'clock on a Saturday morning, it was locked and deserted. All four men got rid of any wet clothes and tried to make themselves as presentable as possible. At 6 a.m., the station opened, and Dash bought four tickets to New York, the first train leaving at 6.59. The four men were the only passengers to board at Amagansett, and within minutes they were rapidly leaving the Hamptons behind, incredibly relieved to have successfully completed one of the most challenging parts of their mission. Hank even shook Dash's hand, acknowledging his leadership and guiding them out of danger. The group got off in Jamaica, Queens at about 9 a.m. and then spent two hours on a shopping spree before boarding their train. By the time they were finished, they had all replaced their secondhand wardrobes with brand new clothes and shoes, each man having plenty of money to spend from the belts secreted around their waists. Dash then suggested that the group split up into pairs to avoid detection and to meet at 3 o'clock at an automat on 34th Street near Penn Station. Dash and Berger took the train into the city, Hank and Quirin ate lunch before casually taking the subway into Manhattan in time for the 3 p.m. rendezvous. 
Upon arrival at Penn Station, Dash and Berger checked into the massive Governor Clinton Hotel across the street. The group all showed up on time at the automat. Dash positively shocked by the transformation of Hank and Quirin, who were now as natally attired as any fashionable New Yorker. After setting up a meeting spot at a nearby restaurant for 1 p.m. on Sunday, or 6 p.m. at Grant's tomb, if that fell through, Dash suggested that Hank and Quirin check into another local hotel, the Chesterfield. With that, Berger and Dash made their way to Macy's and another shopping spree so bountiful that they had to buy suitcases for all of their new purchases. Hank and Quirin ignored Dash's suggestion and instead relied on a tip from a local who suggested the Hotel Martinique on 32nd. Not long after Dash and Berger, they went to Macy's for their own binge. Although outwardly the saboteurs were coexisting and implementing their first steps towards at least blending successfully into American society, Hank and Quirin's choice of a hotel indicated a basic mistrust or at least antagonism toward their team leader the next 24 hours would greatly exacerbate this unease. After Dash and Berger returned to their rooms, they decided to have dinner in the hotel. Over steaks and fine wine, far away from any secret police presence, Dash and Berger had an increasingly frank discussion about their attitudes and experiences in Nazi Germany. As a minor government official, Berger had run afoul of the Gestapo by merely submitting an analysis that was critical of harsh police practices in occupied Poland. With a prior high-level connection to the SA and an American residency, he was arrested for, quote, falsification of documents, unquote. Confined in brutal conditions in Gestapo prisons for 17 months, Berger was especially bitter over official harassment of his pregnant wife, repeatedly told that her husband would eventually receive a lengthy sentence and that divorce was her patriotic duty. She eventually miscarried. Berger was ultimately released without prosecution, let out of jail, and conscripted into the army, but he clearly harbored a deep resentment towards the Nazi government. Berger's unprecedented candor also loosened Dash's tongue, but he stopped short of telling Berger of his actual plans for the mission. With the dining room filling up, the two saboteurs left the hotel for a lengthy stroll of the local sites in midtown Manhattan. Dash unloading a detailed narrative of his personal philosophy until midnight and the end of an extraordinary day that had started in the water off of Long Island. Both men adjourned to their rooms, agreeing to meet for breakfast in Dash's room tomorrow, with the team leader promising a specific discussion that would shock and surprise Berger. Berger responded by stating that he didn't think he would be surprised. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about George Dash. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Saboteurs, The Nazi Raid on America by Michael Dobbs, Betrayal, The True Story of J. Edgar Hoover and the Nazi Saboteurs, Captured During World War II by David Allen Jackson, Eight Spies Against America by George Dash, and They Came to Kill by Eugene Rackless. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, 
and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.